0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: A heads up, today's science friction is about S-E-X. So if there are little ears in the room, now is your cue. But actually, it's not about the act of having S-E-X at all.
2: It's complicated. Yeah, it is. Um.
3: (laughs) Well, look, that's a really profound question.
4: And honestly, it's it's a complicated and, I think, more beautiful story.
3: Hi, it's Natasha Mitchell with
1: you. How pop culture, how society talks about biological sex is complicated. And the subject of so much heated discussion, debate, research, activism, how biologists define it, on the other hand, is something
2: else. So you could say, OK, let's seize on some one characteristic.
1: People talk about sex in terms of hormones like testosterone or estrogen, the X and Y sex chromosomes, what genitals look like, whether a person makes eggs or sperm. But what actually is biological sex?
2: If you have a Y chromosome, we're going to call you a male. And if you don't have a Y chromosome, we're going to call you a female.
1: But it's not that simple because, well, nothing is.
2: The trouble with any single criterion like that in our societies is that there are people that are exception to those to each rule.
1: And you might embrace your rule breaker status. You might come with an extra sex chromosome as some born with different intersex conditions do. Or if you're transgender, the sex between your ears is certainly not defined by what's between your legs. I mean, the reality is that society, religions, cultures, often act to constrain people's free expression of, for example, fluid sexual identities by pointing to biological sex and the binary of biological sex, male or female, as somehow a cold, hard, sobering fact.
0: So every biologist knows that there are many species where individuals first become female and then change into a male, or they become male when they're young and later on turn into a female.
1: This is philosopher of biology, Professor Paul Griffiths from the University of Sydney.
0: Every biologist knows that there are species where individuals are, for example, all either male or hermaphrodite. There are no pure females. All of those statements are what biologists mean when they say there are only two sexes. So what I'm trying to get across is that what biologists mean when they say there are only two sexes is completely different from what, for example, uh, you were saying advocates of religion or political movements say when they stamp their foot and they say there are only two human sexes. They're really not talking about the same thing at all.
1: So in fact, humans and our interpretation of what biological sex means can be incredibly rigid and restrictive, but biology doesn't
0: tell that story. One of the most uninteresting sexually reproductive systems out is the one that we see in humans. (laughs) The genetics is pretty uninteresting. The way we do it is kind of uninteresting. The diversity of reproductive systems across different species in the whole diversity of life, fungi, plants, animals, and microorganisms is simply extraordinary. It goes far beyond anything in science fiction or speculative fiction.
1: Some argue that if gender identities exist on a spectrum, then so too might our biological sex.
4: It seems that, like, binaries are simple. They're simple to understand.
1: We met New York-based neuroscientist and trans woman Dr Simone Sun on last week's show. It's really worth catching the podcast if you missed that.
4: You know, like, when you're in a, quote, argument or a debate to just use the binary, it it doesn't take the time and the nuance to really dive into And, you know, like that's where the real science is happening.
1: So let's go tango with that science of sex.
2: So my way of thinking of it is that there are some biological absolutes that we can't get around. This is Professor Art Arnold
1: from the University of California, Los Angeles. He spent his career investigating the genetics of sex differences, starting with songbirds and rats, but it's work that's really helping transform our understanding of how different human diseases depend on our biological sex.
2: We can decide culturally to call anybody a male or female based on any characteristic that we agree on. That's social construction of a dichotomy. But maleness and femaleness are anchored in a biological truth, which is that each of us had a father and a mother, a biological father and a biological mother. You can't make a child except by fusing a sperm cell and an egg cell.
1: Okay, so are these two sex cells, an egg from your mother, a sperm from your father, are they fundamental to how biologists define sex? What about the sex chromosomes inside each and every one of your body's cells? Typically, two X chromosomes for a female, an X and Y for a male. Professor Jenny Graves from La Trobe University is famous for doing research that predicts the eventual extinction of the relatively tiny Y chromosome. Whoops. She studies the genetics of sex chromosomes in Australian animals.
3: But actually, as I start looking beyond mammals and beyond marsupials, and I now do a lot of work on reptiles, um, some of them don't even have sex chromosomes. So I'm now looking at a much broader definition that's useful, not only for man and mouse and kangaroos, but, but also for lizards and alligators. And that is, it's all about reproduction. It's all about whether the animal makes or could make sperm or eggs. So I think that's probably the most useful definition biologically is whether an individual or a creature has the potential to make sperm or eggs.
1: Importantly, though, genes on our sex chromosomes do play a role in humans developing a biological sex, don't they? How do they do that?
4: One of the biggest determinants of how this occurs is the SRY gene. So on the Y chromosome, it was eventually discovered because of the participation of intersex people in research. I actually don't know if they consented to this, to the research, but you know they were participants in it, that they discovered that it wasn't the Y chromosome itself, but a gene, a single gene on the Y chromosome, which known as the SRY gene where if it's not there, then the animal doesn't develop into a male. And it turns out that it's a brief coordinating signal that sets a whole set of genes to start expressing and repressing other sets of genes. So you go from this brief moment that sort of signals the beginning of a process that then involves a whole set of other players. You get other genes that start to play other roles. That's sort of like a tripwire, isn't it? Uh, I like to think of it as more of, you know, like an opening chord to a symphony.
1: Ah, ha, ha. that's a much better way
4: the SRY gene is kind of like, you know, just this big hit of a chord at the beginning and then the song moves on. But you still require, you know, all of these other aspects of the symphony orchestra to be playing in order for it to be, you know, like, say, the male male gonad symphony, (laughs) you know? Um,
1: I'd like to hear that. Right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sex itself is, of course, inextricably linked to reproduction. We have the categories of male and female only because each of us has a mother and a father. Each of us is the product of the fusion of egg cell and a sperm cell. So you need the two sexes. And so you know, maleness and femaleness are anchored to that truth.
1: But Art Arnold is quick to qualify what that biological truth doesn't
2: mean. I'm not at all arguing that that's the only kind of male and female there is. So we as a society appropriately decide that we're not going to restrict our definition of male and female to ability to make sperm cells and egg cells, nor do we in our everyday interactions really care at all. I mean, The way in which we interact, which is gendered, we have gendered interactions, but we're never looking at each other's genitals, if you excuse the thought. (laughs) <laughs> um, and we we don't check in on the bio, we don't do a DNA test to decide whether we're talking to a male or female.
1: Although if you're transgender or an intersex person and want to compete in the Olympics these days, that is exactly what you're subjected to. But back to biology 101 for a moment.
0: One of the problems is that for a biologist, sex is about putting together DNA from different places to make new organisms. Now. For most people in the street, that's not the first thing that comes when they think about sex. They think about sexual behavior or sexual preference or people having sex. But for a biologist, the basic question is, how do organisms make new organisms? I mean, what could be more central to biology than how living things use DNA to make new living things? But it's really not what most people are interested in. And so that's one reason why biologists, I think, are quite generally misunderstood when they talk about sex. To say that a species has sex simply means that individuals have more than one parent.
1: Paul Griffiths says biologists studying life and its diversity aren't just misunderstood, but they've also been a target.
0: I, you know, talked to a number of biologists who'd had hate mail where all they were doing was studying worms and had absolutely no interest in humans or any of the issues around sex and gender that are exercising society today.
1: Many of those who have critiqued the biology of sex and the way in which it gets socially constructed or interpreted are concerned that if we reduce all of humanity down to our reproductive story, that in itself is dangerous.
0: They're absolutely right. I mean, I've met a lot of scientists who've devoted their lives to understanding the evolution of sex. And I can tell you that they are a great deal more interested in yeast than they are in humans. (laughs) And so the concerns of people that are at a deep level trying to understand why sex exists and why sexes exist are so far away from the concerns of people who are writing about how we as a society should use sex in our social arrangements that... We really need to, to stop thinking that there are important lessons to be taken from that deep basic biological understanding which applies to all living things that have some application to those social questions. I just don't think there are many connections at all.
1: I wonder about that because discussions around gender are, are, are about how our environment, our upbringing, our social conditions, our life experiences shape our sense of self. Through yeah. the story of our gender, and I guess a yeast is also doesn't sub- have a sense of self. Well, it's all it's all subject to those variables, though. It's subject to an environment, a life experience, uh, you know. I, I mean, don't,
0: I don't, I don't, I, I don't believe it that might it not any have an interior sense. life,
1: but it does have a sort of no. a, a chemical way of responding to the world.
0: I keep seeing people comparing non-human plants and animals to draw lessons about human sex and gender, and I I think these are so profoundly unhelpful. Uh, There's an article I read recently claiming that uh, the Australian bush tomato is gender fluid. Now, I think if you are a human being who has had a complex process of individual development, forging your identity in negotiation with the roles that are available to you in society and the values of the people around you, and somebody says to you, oh, that's just like this genetic switch that changes the shape of the flowers in this plant. I think that's a ridiculous thing to say. What's happening with a gender fluid human being has got nothing to do with a simple genetic program that switches flowers from one form to another in the bush tomato. And the idea that we could learn something about gender fluidity by studying bush tomatoes, I just think is completely ridiculous.
1: So, how do you decouple the two?
0: I stop! stop talking about gender in plants, that would be an advantage. Plants don't have gender. Plants have sex, plants have sexual morphology, and in a really interesting way, plants have sexual behavior. They excrete things. They switch on and off genes. But plants don't have social roles that they conform to. Plants are not governed by norms that other people impose on them. Well, I guess, unless you're talking about farmers, okay?
1: As a research biologist and as a trans woman, Dr. Simone's son knows firsthand the way in which scientific definitions of biological sex get used or misused to serve different social agendas.
4: If we start making value judgments based on an assumption about what a person's chromosomes are, you know, that gets into very messy and i think untenable territory when it comes to how we should you know be treating and thinking about people
1: but of course some institutions in society do use sex chromosomes as a sort of categorical definition don't they in terms of what elite sports people might compete in i mean i think even the united states national institutes of health uses a chromosomal definition of sex xy for males xx for females
4: Right, so, and that's, it's a chromosomal sex definition, right? But sex includes many things beyond just the chromosomes. And so when it comes to studying this thing, we can pick the chromosomal sex as our way of defining it such that we can then investigate these phenomena, but that it's not, using definitions for a phenomenon is different than using definitions for people.
1: That's the vital distinction right there. Yep. When biologists talk about biological sex, they're thinking about the way species, including us, survive and evolve across generations. And that happens by somehow getting your genes or DNA into the next generation, making babies. And that starts with eggs
3: and sperm. Jenny Graves what evolution is trying to do of course is always to maximize how many offspring you have and so getting your eggs or getting your sperm into the next generation there's all sorts of tricks that evolution has used both to modify the bearers of eggs and sperm modify them physically behaviorally in every way to get more of those eggs or more of those sperm into the next generation so all the physical differences between males and females, all the hormonal differences, all the behavioral differences evolved just with that one aim in mind.
0: And when you find an organism that's using its DNA in one way, it's a male. And when you find the organism that's using its DNA to make babies in the other way, it's a female. And that insight that there are two different strategies for using your DNA to create offspring is at the heart of the biology of sex and of our best scientific understanding of why organisms have sex and why there are different sexes. If you don't think about sex fundamentally in terms of different strategies for using your DNA to create offspring, you won't be able to get any kind of a grip on the massive diversity of different sexually reproductive systems that we see in nature.
1: But when it comes to diversity in nature, the number of different ways that animals or organisms use these two different strategies is totally wild. So much more interesting than any rigid binary that people often assume it to be. argument is that nothing in the biological definition of sex requires that every organism be a member of one sex or the other.
0: That's right. Some very simple examples. We're in Australia. Everybody likes, when you go snorkelling, everybody likes to see a blue groper. Blue groper are really beautiful, massive blue fish swimming around. We're all looking at them. All of those big blue gropers are male and all of them used to be female. And if they were lucky enough to live and get bigger and larger, they switch into sexually mature males. Now there's a period halfway between that where you've got a fish, is it a female? Well, it used to be a female, but it isn't anymore. Is it a male? Well, it will be a male next week, but at the moment it isn't. And there's simply no fact of the matter about whether the fish that you're looking at through your snorkeling mask is male or female. It's in the middle of switching from one to the other.
1: And limpets
0: do the very opposite to the blue grouper fish. In some animals, the ecology, the way they make their living and the, the way in which they compete with one another means that it's more advantageous to be male when you're small and female when you're large. And that's the pattern we see in limpets and some other shellfish. It's all about which strategies will best serve the goal of reproducing yourself. And that's what explains the diversity of life.
1: Limpets grow into the biological sex of females so that they uh, have the resources to produce their large eggs. Blue groperfish grow into the biological sex of male so that they can
0: control territories when they're larger. So they have competition, so they can deal with competition, exactly. Another example, why be hermaphroditic? Well, hermaphroditic nematode worms make sperm when they're young And they store it so that later in life they can fertilize themselves when they become female. Now that's really useful if there's a possibility of not meeting a male, you can just fertilize yourself. So there are all different strategies for winning the competition to reproduce yourself and to have to leave offspring. There are so many different ways of doing that.
1: So many different ways. Earthworms are simultaneous hermaphrodites, aren't they? So they're both male and female
0: male at one end and female at the other roughly yes i think that's i quite right. like that option and again it's interesting that we that that's something that's been taught in high school biology for many years but doesn't seem to have perhaps uh, you know left the maybe people forget that kind of thing when they leave school but uh, it ought to show you that nature is a good deal more diverse than uh, than people sometimes think
1: and then you have saltwater crocodiles who simply have no sex chromosomes at all. So what's going on there?
0: One of the real problems is that a lot of scepticism about the existence of two distinct sexes stems from being fixated on genetic or chromosomal definitions of sex. Mm. But lots of species simply don't have sex chromosomes. And there are lots of species that use what's called environmental sex determination. So I like using the example of the crocodile because Uh, A massive, aggressive, territorial uh, saltwater crocodile is a male crocodile. You can take an identical egg, absolutely genetically in every other way identical, simply change the temperature at which you incubate it, and you'll produce a rather smaller female saltwater crocodile. One of them will follow the male reproductive strategy of producing large numbers of sperm and the other one will follow a female reproductive strategy of producing a relatively small number of highly provisioned eggs.
1: So what does all this diversity in the way biological sex manifests and morphs across nature say about how it works in us, humans?
4: Nature is very complicated and a diverse thing. And, you know, if we get locked into one particular way of thinking about it, we're going to misunderstand or misattribute certain things to a thing that we are studying
1: biological sex has been used to contain people it's been used to kind of impress upon people a particular moral reality or viewpoint
3: oh absolutely and i i think you know things have got better in the last few hundred years a few hundred years ago it would have been uh you know, excruciating if you're the wrong sex, you don't, don't do anything with your life at all.
1: But even just a few years ago, we were still debating on who should marry who and partner for life with whom
3: on the basis of their biological sex. I think we can just throw away a lot of those old things and say, well, that's not relevant at all. It's relevant if you want to have a baby. If you want to have a baby and you're both female, you probably have to try a bit harder and, and make other arrangements, but getting married or calling yourself whatever you like and wearing whatever you like, these are things where I don't see a binary divide as, as being helpful or relevant.
4: I think it's easy to just point at definitions and say, that's, that's it. Like, I mean, that's what sex is. And it's like, sure, yeah, that is what sex is in this context, but it's, only useful to a certain extent, and that to use that as the scientific argument against trans people is just not viable.
1: But the question remains, well, I have a million questions, of course, but one of them is, why has science only ever found just two biological sexes?
3: Well, look, that's a really profound question.
0: Biologists know that they're physically Of course, there could be three sexes, there could be five sexes, there could be seven sexes. It's really interesting and really challenging as a scientific question, why those systems don't evolve. You always find two fundamentally different ways of using your DNA to make babies. Or, of course, one. Sometimes one, sometimes two, never three, never five, never seven.
3: And in fact, people write books about it. Not so much why aren't there three sexes or five or 100 sexes. Or infinite number of sexes. Well, why do we have sex at all? Because you'd think that if the eggs and sperm individuals are evolving to maximise the chance of their genes getting into the next generation, you do much better t- to clone yourself. So it's a, a real mystery why we have two sexes. And the answer seems to be it's, it's really good to mix the genes up. Because then you get individual differences and not only do you have a chance of maybe colonising a new ecological niche with your differences, but you're also bamboozling the pathogens. And there are, I mean, there are lizards that don't have males and females. They're all essentially females. The females lay eggs. The chromosomes and genes are just variations of their own chromosomes of genes. But they don't last very long evolutionarily and they're often wiped out by some pathogen that is able to infect one of them and they're all the same so bang they're all gone
1: but still the question remains why only two biological sexes why don't we have 10 why don't we have 100 why don't we have an infinite number of biological sexes although that would make
3: life incredibly complicated (laughs) Well, I think you've really hit on it. It just becomes too complicated. Let's say we need eggs and we need sperm and we need another contribution to the baby. We need three parents. We have enough trouble getting two people together to make a baby. So two seems to be what evolution has hit on as the best way to combine genes, make new combinations, but don't get too complicated.
1: Why not? Thanks to Jenny Graves, Paul Griffiths, Art Arnold, Simone son, and also to Dr. Vernon Rosario, who was very helpful in my research. His paper, Quantum Sex Intersex and the Molecular Deconstruction of Sex, is such a fascinating read. More on the Science Friction website. You can find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Share the podcast with your friends. See you.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.